Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to the Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at the Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at the Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. It's me, Kelly. Will is out this week. He's going undercover as a MyPillow seamstress, but I'm joined by returning champ and guest host Sam Brody. Sam is a congressional reporter at The Daily Beast. Sam, how's it going? Good to be here. This ruined my plans this week to go undercover as a Hardee's drive-through cashier. I'm glad I could be for real. Yeah, I mean, listen, there are increasingly Mike Lindell-related tie-ins to the show, so you can really diversify your career portfolio here. This is sort of the season of Sam. We're done with the primaries. We're moving into the generals and... We've kind of sewn up the cast of interesting characters who are going to be running. And what's especially interesting to me is we're hitting our first wave of Gen Z candidates in the general, which makes me feel, frankly, ancient. But I was just, what's your take on the young new whippersnappers running for Congress. It's been weird this session of Congress. Like first AOC was around and like she's roughly my age. So I was like, okay, I mean, I'm feeling pretty inadequate and in what I've done with my life, but like, I guess that's cool. And then Madison Cawthorn gets elected at 25 and is like the age of like a junior staff assistant on the Hill. And it's like, okay, here we go. But he was kind of a unique case. And now you've got like a crop of Gen Z folks on both sides of the aisle, really, who I think are, at least some of them are going to make it to Congress next year. And they're going to make everyone feel extremely old and introduce some new energy into Congress, which is always good. But I think it's going to be some really different kinds of energy. Because like on the one side, you have this woman, Caroline Levitt, a Republican, won her primary in New Hampshire and actually a pretty competitive battleground district up there. I believe she just turned 25, making her, I think that's like the minimum eligibility age. I think she would be the youngest person ever elected to Congress. I and many reporters have dealt with her because she was formerly like a press secretary for Elise Stefanik, the high-ranking Trump supporter among House Republicans. And then she just like left and turned around and ran for Congress. So she's like bringing the like, I'm a Gen Z Republican energy. You've got this guy, Maxwell Frost down in Florida, who won his primary. He's a Democrat. I think he's a little older, but is kind of bringing the like, sort of almost like Sunrise Movement, like kind of that sort of lefty Gen Z energy. So if both of them make it to Congress next year, 
it'll just be kind of the like 25 year old version of like old boomers fighting, which is what makes Congress amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you mentioned Madison Cawthorn as a special case because I did kind of feel like he spoke with the cadence of a boomer meme. So I never really kind of interpreted him as Gen Z or Gen Z adjacent. But yeah, we're into the thick of it now. We're aging. It's the kid's time. Well, he's like Madison was like nice young man sort of syndrome. Like he sort of developed his political persona a little bit around like the fact that in order to win a Republican primary in like a rural district in the South, like you're largely talking to old people. And so he goes around and the reaction he's going for is like, that's what a nice young man he is. (laughs) And so he's got to be conversant in the boomer memes. And (laughs) I'm sure it was hard. That's code switching. He's got to rumble with the kids on Twitter and he popularized dark MAGA, lest we forget. But also kind of he's got to play the hits when he goes by the VFW and all that. Absolutely. Gone too soon. We hardly knew you, Madison Cawthorn. I'm kidding. I'm sure he'll pop up in a extremely visible and unavoidable role very soon. (laughs) All right, moving on. We kicked at it earlier, but last week was a banger for Mike Lindell, who maybe was the first person ever to be the subject of an FBI raid at a Hardee's restaurant. This is, of course, MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell. He says that last week, as he was going through the Hardee's drive-thru in Minnesota, some federal agents surrounded him. They seized his phone as part of an investigation into a breach of voting machines in Mesa County, Colorado. Now, longtime listeners of Fever Dreams might be familiar with this case. This involves friend of the show, Tina Peters, clerk of Mesa County, Colorado. She's a conspiracy theorist. She allegedly participated in this scheme to impersonate a local tech guy, steal his identity, break into her own voting machines, and then leak that data to Mike Lindell and folks of his ilk. Tina Peters later went on Mike Lindell's private jet to his cyber symposium on voter fraud last August. She went on the run, hiding in Mike Lindell's safe houses. And Mike Lindell also claims to have given her hundreds of thousands of dollars, which is well in excess of Colorado's $65 limit on gifts to public officials. So we can see a couple connections between Mike Lindell and this ongoing federal investigation here. Yeah, that might exceed the 65. I'm crunching the numbers here and that maybe went over a little bit. Yeah, I'm certainly not a math whiz, but by a couple orders of magnitude. Something that's actually interesting is Sam... I've been trying to kind of conceptualize this. I have to admit, I've never been to a Hardee's, New York girl, not really a regional restaurant, but you might've actually been to the Hardee's in question. Can you kind of like set the scene? What should we visualize here? Yeah, so I am not from Minnesota, but my first job in reporting was working for a Minnesota publication. And that required me to like travel around the state from time to time. So you're driving around covering political events and such, and you may need to get a quick look lunch or dinner or breakfast or whatever it may be along the way. So I believe that this Hardee's was in Mankato, Minnesota, which is actually a a delightful little town in southern Minnesota surrounded by farmland and rivers and stuff. And I'm pretty sure I know where this Hardee's is because I've spent a little bit of time in in Mankato. Mankato is a pleasant place to make yourself acquainted with federal law enforcement. If I had to choose, (laughs) there are way worse places in Minnesota to have this happen. But I'm just going to go out on a limb and say maybe not this particular Hardee's. But parties in general, I don't think I'm just my gut says Mike Lindell is not the first person to have been 
<laughs> encountered FBI agents in the drive-thru of a Hardee's somewhere. And this isn't like a commentary on Hardee's menu or anything like that. I actually feel as far as fast food chains go, and my West Coast folks will know it as Carl's Jr., same thing. Grew up with that chicken star kids meal at Carl's <laughs> Jr. It's fine food, but yeah, sometimes the vibes can be a little off and it's sort of like you get a, like, a little FBI feeling to it. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. I think my analog is like a Denny's restaurant. I am sure like every one in three Denny's has had some kind of state or federal investigation tied to it. So, okay, okay. I think Hardy's the franchise, kind of rolled with the punches fairly well here. They were a little snide on Twitter after this tweeted about, for those of you who still have a phone, you might want to come through and try our pillowy soft biscuits. I thought that was cute. So frankly, like in, in all seriousness, I was surprised with how punchy they seem to be about this whole situation, just given that like we're all familiar with like brands being really voicey and kind of cringe on Twitter, especially like fast food restaurants, like talking to each other and using whatever, like instantly killing whatever like new meme that the kids are using. But to wade into something this political, I was sort of surprised. And also that it was kind of funny. Like, <laughs> I don't think they screwed it up. No, credit where due. I'm also one of the people cringing when like Wendy's tweets come over Bay at McDonald's or something like that. But this was cute. And I think I have a little bit of further scene setting here. Or maybe this is the story that got away because I was actually on the phone, maybe the same phone that was seized with Mike Lindell about a couple hours before this raid would have gone down. Whoa. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, Sam, what could have been if I was having that oh, call? Oh my gosh. When it Minutes happened. away I know. from a scoop. Mike Lindell chowing down on a Western bacon cheeseburger as he's on the phone with you and the G-men come in. <laughs> it would have definitely been certainly an embeddable audio clip in the story. <laughs> but it's all fun and games to talk about the scene in the Hardee's parking lot. But unfortunately, we kind of have to care about this because it taps into a broader narrative of federal overreach that the right is trying to gin up in the wake of the Mar-a-Lago raid on Donald Trump. So in the immediate aftermath to this raid, the Hardy's raid, that is, Mike Lindell hit the airwaves saying that this was a massive breach of his civil rights. And not only that, but saying that if the FBI can do this to him in the Hardy's parking lot, they can do it to you. And I think we've been hearing that kind of soundbite used in relation to Trump a lot. Sam, do you have like any any sense of how the right is using this fear of federal prosecution to get folks behind Trump as he's weathering these new investigations? Yeah, no, I think it's a really actually an important point to home in on. And I think it all kind of ties together with what you're talking about. And let me just like reference a tweet from Jim Jordan sort of as I think representative <laughs> of like what the strategy is. And like, I think it's important to pay attention to him because what he what he says typically is like messaging wise adopted by then like very immediately like a hundred other like more low profile House Republicans. So what he says is is really important. And so he had a tweet from last week after this all happened saying they go after good people like Rep Scott Perry and Mike Lindell. 
but the Hunter Biden laptop is disinformation. So, and for folks who don't know, Scott Perry, one of the Trump-aligned congressmen who had his phone looked at potentially in connection with some FBI investigation around kind of the broader January 6th stuff. So it's sort of like not just a they're going after good people, but there's this double standard here. They don't look at Hunter Biden, and they do look at people that you like. So I would expect to see a ton more of this. But I do think we have to like sort of acknowledge it was said about Trump after the Mar-a-Lago raid. That's like, well, if they can do this to him, they can do it to anyone. It's just like, well, yeah, they do this to people all the time. If you <laughs> if you break federal law, this might happen to you. But it was said in these reverent tones about Donald Trump, obviously a former president. It's just funny to see it used for like a pillow guy like Mike Lindell. It's like, well, if they can do this to Mike Lindell, it's just like, he's a guy who's on TV a lot and sells pillows. I don't know. It's just, it was just wild to see that used as if he was some kind of like cabinet official or dignitary. No, it is really funny to see them make this figure of suffering out of Mike Lindell. And when they're doing this, they're actually really changing the facts of the case. In the immediate aftermath of his phone being seized, there were all these memes going around saying they arrested Mike Lindell for his views and two things going on there. One, he's not arrested. We don't even know if there are charges against Mike Lindell. They just subpoenaed his phone. And two, what views? <laughs> because he's not being investigated for his belief that the election was stolen. He's being investigated due to his alleged proximity to a plot to literally break into voting machines, leak the contents because they thought the election was stolen. So there's a lot of wiggle room there. They're really trying to make a martyr out of this guy who I'd like to see them stick by Mike Lindell's side because I don't think this is going to come out so great for him when all the facts come to light. Yeah, I mean, I think these are all good points. And I do think there is an element here, too, of like folks like Jim Jordan, like who sort of play in the respectable world, semi-respectable world, if we can even call it that, of Capitol Hill. But court the base and like any of us who've been to a Trump rally know that Mike Lindell is given like the most rapturous reception anytime he shows up. People in the base just love the man. And I think there's a huge risk here, as, as Kelly outlines, of getting ahead of this by like going to the mat for Mike Lindell before we know more about what exactly is happening. But like Jim Jordan will get rewarded for that no matter what. And if and when there are more serious things that, that happen with Lindell's case, there's going to be no accountability and people will appreciate that there are people in Congress or wherever else are sticking up for Mike Lindell. Absolutely. And this comes, of course, simultaneous to the lawsuits against Mike Lindell. He's being sued into oblivion by the likes of Dominion voting for the Claims he's made against them. But one counterpunch he claims to have against the FBI is he says he's teaming up with Alan Dershowitz to sue them for stealing his phone. So again, we're really going to have to keep an eye on Lindell and the several court cases coming up. And maybe during that time, he will finally be able to prove voter fraud. Maybe he'll get that hamburger. <laughs> I hope he did get it at long last. Okay, moving on. So, Sam, you've been following the campaign of one of, I think, sort of the low-key, most colorful candidates for office really anywhere in the country. So can you tell me what's going on with the Mark Fincham campaign? Yes, I think this is one of the like actually most, I mean, in addition to being colorful, really consequential races that people should care about. So Mark Fincham is a Arizona state legislator who is the Republican nominee for Secretary of State in Arizona, which in Arizona and a lot of other states is now a really, really fraught position 
administration because the Secretary of State oversees elections. And as listeners definitely know, there's a bunch of Trump-aligned, Trump-endorsed Republicans running for Secretary of State in key battleground states around the country who not only believe the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen, but have been active participants in propagating those and popularizing those beliefs. And in some cases were, like Fincham's, were actually at the Capitol on January 6th. So obviously a huge deal if, if these folks get anywhere near the reins of the election system in key states that could decide the 2024 election. But really, there are some characters in this field, but but Fincham is definitely near the top of the list. And I think seeing how candidates, Republican candidates, wink and nod to the fringe in increasingly brazen ways, like Fincham, it's like a full-on hug. There's no winking or nodding. He is running for statewide office in a battleground state, just completely letting it all hang out, so to speak. So I just reported on a fundraiser that Fincham did in Newport Beach, California, and it was co-hosted by a woman who has spent the last few years explaining to her social media followers why Sandy Hook was staged and fake, why the Las Vegas shooting was staged and fake. She commemorated 9-11 last week by calling it the day that the deep state murdered thousands of people. So (laughs) these are the sorts of folks that Fincham associates with. I also reported last week on a speech he gave before the Arizona primary in which he unspooled a truly, you got to give him a hand, conspiracy about Mike Pence, actually blaming Mike Pence for the 2016 surveillance of of the Trump campaign (laughs) by federal law enforcement. Yeah, this is a theory. I think I pay pretty close attention to the weird stuff bubbling up from Telegram, and I had never actually heard this conspiracy theory before. So this guy is in the weeds. Like, he's really plugged into the conspiracy world. And here's where it gets super weird with relation to the 2016 theory. So he makes the point, Fincham argues that Pence was installed on the ticket, if Trump and his family had no input over this, was installed on the ticket by Reince Priebus, the RNC chair who went on to become Trump's chief of staff, and then Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House. What do Ryan's Priebus and Paul Ryan have in common, you might ask? Both of them happen to be from the state of Wisconsin. This is where it gets interesting. <laughs> Fincham also theorizes that Pence is trying to steal the 2024 election and is being aided by the likes of Paul Ryan and Reince Priebus, who it should be noted are nowhere near power at any point currently. Both are from Wisconsin. Where, you might ask, is the 2024 Republican presidential convention being held? Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And so Fincham like, is talking about this and he rolls out the Milwaukee convention like it is the smoking gun. Like he just found like the second gunman on the grassy knoll. <laughs> I love the Wisconsin political cabal. That's the one that you hear about all the time. Powerful. They're ruthless and they'll stop at nothing. So Kelly, like you, I I do try to stay up on the latest and greatest theories, but I had never heard anything like this before. And yeah. So Sam, what's so wild about this is to your point that he's running for secretary of state in Arizona. This is not what inconsequential position. And this is actually part of a wave of candidates for this role. These are people who will oversee their state's elections and how they're carried out, how votes are counted. So there's a lot of potential consequence for someone this fringe taking a role like that. And we're seeing similar races in Pennsylvania where the presumed Republican secretary of state candidate is pretty fringe. But what exactly has someone like Fincham indicated that they might do with that role? Yeah, because I think there's two important things to look at here when you're looking at like, what might someone like this do in that role? And I think the first thing is like, they do have 
power in a lot of states to implement policy. Obviously, state legislatures can and usually do set the law about what sort of voting voting measures are allowed and what aren't. But the Secretary of State has a lot of latitude to implement those and push for the legislation themselves. So Mark Fincham has essentially indicated that he wants to roll back most, and I'd have to check on this, if not all forms of absentee voting, kind of a direct offshoot to a lot of the broadly held conservative gripes and conspiracy theories that relate to absentee voting, which is kind of crazy because Arizona has done absentee voting fairly well for a while. And it's a state with a lot of old people who rely on it. So that's an interesting component there. But the sort of big thing that worries people is if you have a secretary of state who just simply invalidates the results, right? What was so powerful in key states in 2020, like Brad Raffensperger, the Republican secretary of state of Georgia, it meant a lot that he went out and repeatedly affirmed the integrity of Georgia's elections. So imagine if that just didn't happen. It would be pretty wild. Right. And Mark Fincham is actually already kind of attempted this in Arizona. He was a big player in the Arizona audit. Right, exactly. recall. Yeah, it was the effort to recount all those ballots. It was an absolute mess. You had auditors looking for bamboo fibers to indicate that the ballots were fake and shipped in from China. And yeah, he was a big backer of that. In fact, that fundraiser you're talking about where he was uh, spinning up this crazy conspiracy theory about Mike Pence, he is actually in that video wearing a t-shirt associated with the audit, associated with voter fraud. So this is really, really central to everything he's doing in his current office and everything he plans to do in the future. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's so much like uh, we talk a lot about like how 2020 never went away, but it's like, here's a man campaigning for office in 2022. And everywhere he goes, he wears this red shirt that says hashtag prove it. And it's his motto about like Maricopa County, Arizona needs to prove that the election was not stolen. And it's such a glimpse into the worldview. And it's sort of like the the gift that keeps on giving. You could just say that forever. Like, I'm going to wait here until Maricopa County proves that it wasn't stolen. Of course, they've proven it over and over and over again. But if you live in this world, it's never enough. And there's always something to be suspicious about or some conspiracy. And to see it take off like this, I think in Arizona, it's, it's sort of been a ground zero for this sort of stuff. But from Michigan to Minnesota to Pennsylvania, I mean, just there are so many offices where this is folks like Fincham are close to to winning potentially. All right. Our guest this week is Matt Binder, a reporter for Mashable and a host of the podcasts Doom and Scam Economy. Matt is one of the most intrepid reporters on the cryptocurrency hellscape beat. He joins us this week to tell us about cryptocurrency's recent meltdowns. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. All right, we're back with Matt Binder, host of the cryptocurrency-busting podcast, Scam Economy. Matt, how's it going? 
Oh, it's going good. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to talk about the world of cryptocurrency, Web3, NFTs, the future of banking and technology and literally everything else, because that's the thing that any Bitcoin or crypto in general advocate likes to claim Bitcoin will solve this to insert problem here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. These technologies that I use every day, I wake up, I look at my NFTs, I do my crypto exchanges. It's great. Everyone uses these things. Right. There's a congressional candidate in Utah that actually claimed the other day that blockchain will solve the water crisis that's affecting, well, a number of cities all across the country. Outstanding. Is it going to solve the crisis in Utah? where as the Great Salt Lake dries up, there's arsenic at the bottom and it's wafting into the air? Or is that more of like an NFT problem that they can solve? Right. The thing is with an NFT, as long as there's an NFT of it, the real life thing can actually just disappear. That is one of the like most viral claims of that was there was this like NFT advocate who was claiming that like if you have a diamond and you make an NFT of that diamond, if you lose that diamond or that diamond is destroyed, then you can sell the NFT for the same amount because the diamond still exists as an NFT, thus retaining all value. And I think all normal people not in this space are just like, what? I can't wear an NFT yet, I guess. Not yet. Well, okay. So Matt, let's back up a little bit because you've been a crypto skeptic for ages. And I know sometimes it's been kind of a difficult position, but how smug are you feeling right now? I'm smug in terms of I questioned whether this was a thing that would make any sense or have any real utility a long time ago, like 10 plus years ago. And now, obviously, we're now all these years in and there's still no real utility for it, at least at any mass scale. And so, yeah, it feels like, OK, I, I, I called it. But at the same time, unfortunately, it did blow up as crypto did blow up as like a, a speculative asset in the past couple of years. So a lot of people have lost a lot who necessarily were just looking at it as a make money quick scheme and not you know, like how some of the hardcore crypto people look at it as like, oh, I'm just going to like keep doubling down because it's the future. Like I believe in it as like an ideology or like as like a religion almost. There's a double edged sword there in terms of how good to feel about how it all went down. Yeah, totally. I think that's important to remember when I, when I say smug, obviously feel for the people at the bottom of the pyramid scheme. But Matt, we're recording on on September 20th. I think it's officially the last day of summer. And we're in the end zone of what you've called crypto's summer from hell. Can you break down what exactly has been going down in the crypto world this summer and why it's been a bit of a meltdown? Yeah, sure. So in May, so it's a little bit before summer, this all goes down. In May, basically a stable coin called the Terra, also traded as UST, lost its peg. Now, stable coins are basically supposed to be a way for crypto investors to store their money without the volatility of the ebbs and flows that you see in like Bitcoin, Ethereum, or basically any other crypto. You could put 10 bucks in Bitcoin right now, and in an hour, it could be 20, 25 bucks. It could be $5. It could be a dollar. It goes, cryptocurrency is all over the place in terms of its value. Now, stable coins were created to sort of have this relatively normal, regular value 
to your money. So you can put your real $10 USD, US dollars in a stable coin and it should remain $10 because it's one stable coin is pegged to a dollar. So Terra is one of the, or was one of the more popular stable coins. And in May, stable coin Terra lost its peg to a dollar and quickly lost a lot of its value. It was going to like first, it went to like 90 cents, then 80 cents, then 50 cents, and then it went trading for pennies. So people who would put their money in Terra as like a safety measure to store their money as crypto had lost money. And then on top of that, Terra's sister cryptocurrency token, Luna, also lost its value. Now, it's a bit complicated, like all things in crypto, and it's purposely done this way, so very few people actually really understand what they're doing. But Luna was supposed to sort of protect Terra. Like when Terra, if Terra was to lose its peg, they would be able to sell off a certain amount of Luna to then invest in Terra, so it would regain its dollar in value. That didn't happen, so you basically had two side-by-side cryptocurrencies, a stable coin and Terra and then Luna losing their value dramatically. Now, Luna was at its peak just in like April of this year, trading for like $100 a token. When this was all going down, when they lost their value, it dropped to less than a penny. Like we're talking like 0.001 in value here for people who had previously purchased Luna for as much as 100 bucks, a Benjamin. And so a lot of people were losing money And because all these big investing companies had money in Terra and Luna, they lost a lot of money, including major crypto lending companies like Celsius and Voyager. Now, people actually might be familiar with Celsius and Voyager by name because these are two companies that were doing heavy promoting in major sports leagues. Like their major sports teams like the Dallas Mavericks, for example, were sponsored by these crypto lending companies and had a lot of advertising. You saw their names all over, printed all over the arenas. And these companies basically, as this was all going down in the month or two that followed the collapse of Terra and Luna started to tell their customers, like, don't worry, you might be hearing things where we're we're becoming insolvent or we don't have the money, the actual liquid funds, but don't worry, have we even stopped you from withdrawing anything yet, have we? So you can trust us. Well, lo and behold, literally days after Celsius, for example, announced to their customers, don't worry, you can withdraw. Well, they paused withdrawals. And this was just a few months ago, I believe in June, then Celsius actually pauses those withdrawals. And so you had a lot of customers who had put a lot of money into these crypto lending companies like Celsius as investments, wooed by these promises of high yields, yields as high as like sometimes like 20, 30%, things that would, if this was like a bank promising you this, you would be, or any other like old school type investment fund, you'd be wondering, not even wondering, you'd be saying to yourself, this has got to be a Ponzi, right? But crypto has brought this promise of you will get rich, no problem. And so people believed it. They put a lot of money, some people life savings, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions from some of these crypto hedge funds that are now going under due to all this in companies like Celsius. And then they're told they couldn't withdraw because Celsius in turn lost a lot of money with Terra and Luna. And then you have companies falling apart people on not being able to withdraw their funds. So life savings just vanish. And here we are with still dealing with the blowback because the whole crypto market basically acts as one because stable coins help pump up a lot of the crypto prices. So when one 
token or one company fails and they have so much invested in Bitcoin or Ethereum or a major stable coin, then the whole market's going to feel that hit when they go under. And here we are today where these assets, these uh, speculative assets are trading nowhere near where they were when most regular people like you and me, the retail investor decided to start investing crypto when it blew up in 2001. Bitcoin, for example, is currently trading at less than what it was when it blew up for the retail investor in 2001. So basically, when most regular everyday people decided to buy some Bitcoin, the price they bought it at then is higher than what it's at right now. So you have the vast majority of ordinary people who bought Bitcoin currently at a loss if they were to sell right now. Wasn't like the whole idea of crypto like philosophically that it was going to not be like the sort of like big financial products that like led to the ruin of the economy in 2008. What it sounds like you're describing is just like a replication of all these derivatives in financial products and in this sort of like what was supposed to have been imagined as like a utopian kind of like technological like financial fusion, right? Right. Yes. I mean, Bitcoin basically started like a, if I may, a libertarian fever dream. I mean, it was literally like what they wanted to sort of replace the U.S. dollar because really strong libertarian, ideologically libertarian folks, they have strong distrust in the government and strong distrust in the Federal Reserve. And they think the ruination of the country is based in like the printing up of money. And so Bitcoin was supposed to be this government hands off sort of replacement for the old money financial system. Satoshi, the creator of Bitcoin, who still to this day, no one really knows exactly who he, she, or they are. But in the white paper, sort of breaking down what Bitcoin was going to be early on, there was a lot of like mentions of sort of like libertarian Federal Reserve gold bug type terminology. And those hardcore Bitcoin maxis that like they're called maximalists basically still sort of hold that libertarian ideology front and center. Like these are the people like the Max Kaisers, former hosts on RT, a libertarian sort of a conspiratorial thinker. He's like one of the probably like one of the big named examples you can give of those strong libertarian believers who still hold that as why they are so invested in Bitcoin. It's not necessarily the money-making scheme for him, although being that he got in fairly early, I'm sure he's made a tidy sum of money from Bitcoin. But for people like him, they still strongly believe in what Bitcoin could be. But you usually hear from them when they're criticized by like, it's been 10 plus years now and Bitcoin hasn't done a single thing that you were hoping it could do. And they like to then sort of compare it to the early internet as if there were no use cases in the early internet, like email, instant messenger, chat rooms, all sorts of things that actually connected people. Whereas today, Bitcoin and all the other cryptocurrencies, basically their main use case is that of a highly speculative financial asset where people lose a lot of money. <laughs> so Matt, you mentioned the early internet and there was a sense, certainly beginning of this year, that they were on the cusp of reinventing the internet. There's this idea of Web3, this very decentralized 
cryptocurrency aligned new internet sort of thing. And we even saw Facebook dabbling in it with their idea of a metaverse. I get the sense that a lot of the heat has come out of that. A lot of the momentum has been lost. What's going on in the metaverse space? And are people still trying to build that? Right. So there's sort of like two worlds, like two different communities in the crypto space. And that is that ideologically right wing, politically minded individual who's driven by their beliefs in terms of like the small government or no government. And then there are the people who look at it from the technical or financial side in terms of like, oh, this will be the next big thing. And in turn, obviously make all the people who were invested in these big projects or products come out of the crypto space, they would make them rich. And Web3 came out of that second group where the internet will be transformed by cryptocurrency. Everything will be run by the crypto space. And to go back just a little bit and sort of give you the basis here. So cryptocurrency is all run on blockchains. And basically a blockchain is where these tokens live. Like when you buy an NFT, you're you're not actually buying that board API club JPEG. What you're buying is a token that's connected to that board API club image. And that token points to the link to that image on the blockchain. You just basically bought a string of numbers that acts as a receipt because on the blockchain, it tells you what that string of numbers is and all the, the transactions that have been involved with that string of numbers, the people who've bought that string of numbers and letters and characters and the people who've sold that string of numbers, letters and characters. And Web3 advocates believe is that everything will be run on the blockchain. All sorts of information, media will all be stored on the blockchain because to them, the big idea behind that is blockchain. A blockchain is immutable. Whatever is written to the blockchain cannot be changed. You basically cannot change whatever that is. Information stored on the blockchain cannot be reversed. So, you know, that's one of the problems that the cryptocurrency world in terms of just like using it as a financial mechanism has come across because there's no refunds in cryptocurrency. Once your money is sent via cryptocurrency, once you send someone bitcoins, that's it. Now they can send you a refund by just starting a brand new transaction and sending you that same amount of bitcoin, but there's no way to reverse the original transaction. And of course, every time you do that, every new transaction, you get hit with fees of all sorts. The fees involved with transacting on the blockchain and also fees in terms of when you want to actually cash out and turn your Bitcoin or any other crypto into actual US dollars so you can actually use it in the real world. But in the Web3 space, they look at the blockchain as, oh, this is great. All this information can be stored on Web3 via blockchain and we can sell it as that doesn't seem to have very much utility because all these Web3 companies who've promised all sorts of great things have yet to deliver on that promise. Like the Board Ape Yacht Club NFTs certainly blew up in terms of like press and popularity in the space. But so far, they haven't really delivered any of that extra stuff they had promised to people who invested in these Board Ape Yacht Club NFTs. They promised access to parties and special clubs. And sure, there have been like Board Ape events at like the yearly NFT gatherings or whatever. But in terms of like access to like the video games that are developed and all sorts of things, a lot of these NFT projects that promise this stuff like the Board Apes, they haven't delivered that because apparently this might be shocking to people, but it's actually really hard to deliver a product 
that people like and want to use, whether that be video games or some sort of web service. And a lot of these Web3 companies sort of focus on the fundraising via NFTs or like promoting the fact that like they are a Web3 company that's running on the blockchain before actually having a real product that people would want to use. I wrote this article about Helium, which was sort of the Web3 golden child. It was promoted even in the New York Times. The New York Times did a, a really big profile on Helium and even called them, is this the first real Web3 use case that, that makes sense, that actually works. And basically the Helia model was to create this sort of decentralized mesh network where people can access the internet from anywhere, whether they have their own internet connection or whether they are able to even get online via their phone cellular connection. The idea was that via this decentralized network, they would cover as much land as possible to sort of connect the entire world. So you can log on. So users of the Helium network could basically log on wherever they were and pay to use the service. And how would they do that? By convincing people all over the world to buy these, basically these routers that would help grow the Helium network. And if you could get people in all 50 states from all over the place, for example, then you just connected all of America on the Helium network and people will always be able to log on. And the sell to get people to buy a router, thus growing the Helium network, was that these routers also acted as a piece of crypto mining hardware. And every time someone would connect, basically, you would mine the Helium token, which in turn you'd be able to trade for US dollars. You basically make money every time someone was connecting to the Helium network via your router slash crypto miner. And people sort of view this as, oh, wow, like this is huge. I can basically invest a couple hundred bucks for a miner and be part of this really cool project that's getting a lot of press and I can make money. And in the beginning, it does seem like some people were able to cash in and make a good amount of money. But here's the problem. As more people buy those miners slash routers, there is more competition in terms of how many miners slash routers are in your location. And so there's more of that Helium cryptocurrency token to be spread around. And then that means the people who invested the money in those miners slash routers are making less because less people are logging in. And so they started making a lot less in terms of how much of the Helium token they were mining. And then on top of that, it started to come out that not that many people are using the Helium network and that the reason these early investors were actually making anything to begin with was because it was being heavily subsidized by funding from VCs, for example, that Helium had received. So you have all these people who invested in these miners slash routers who were making a decent amount of money that they thought was coming from users of the Helium network. But it actually wasn't coming from users of the Helium network because there aren't that many users. It was coming from funding that Helium received from VCs. Well, eventually this is all gonna fall apart and it sort of has already started because I did some digging around during the summer 
And a lot of those big companies that Helium had claimed were using its network, the same sort of companies it was using to sort of advertise to those investors. Like if you're going to buy one of these mining rigs that costs a couple hundred dollars for a single piece of hardware that basically just sits in your house in the hopes that you'll make money off of it. They had a list of some big companies on their website like Lime and Salesforce that they said were using their network. And a lot of investors who bought that hardware to grow the network and also mine the Helium token had looked at this user base that Helium claimed to have. And that was the reason behind their decision to invest in the Helium mining uh, hardware. So over the summer, I reached out to some of these companies. And one company I reached out to was Lime Scooters. Now, people might be familiar with Lime Scooters. They're a fairly big e-scooter rideshare company. They have scooters in a number of big cities. They have a pretty large global customer base. And I reached out to them because Helium in interviews and in their big profile with the New York Times, they used Lime scooters as one of the big use cases of their network. They claimed that the company used Helium network to make sure that they could always track where their Lime scooters were being used. Well, Lime told me that Beyond like a short testing period years ago, they've never used the Helium network. They never were a customer. They never put it into the broader systems that track their scooters. And as things went on, it turned out that a few other companies that Helium had proclaimed were using their network also didn't. Salesforce, huge tech company, is one of those companies that they had listed on their website that had turned out to not use the Helium network. So what you have now is a mesh network that isn't being used by that many people that promised a return on investment to miners who bought these routers in order to make some money who won't ever probably see a return on that investment. And that's the big Web3 golden goose, Helium, that was supposed to solve this problem. That was, according to New York Times, the first real use case of Web3. And on top of that, if you think about it, the incentivization method was the only thing that was really utilizing the blockchain. The actual network had nothing to do with a blockchain or a cryptocurrency. It was just like a decentralized mesh network that other companies have been able to roll out all over the country, all over the world, without the use of any sort of cryptocurrency token or blockchain system. I mean, why can't a system this intuitive get mass adoption from my incredibly offline family and my neighbors? I just don't understand why. Matt, before we let you go, are there any really like standout scams that are your favorite? Are there any crypto scams that have a special place in your heart? Ooh, let me think. One of the best things about the crypto world is that scammers have an unlimited supply of people to scam because even though the actual world of crypto, like the people who are really investing money in it, is kind of small, these scammers can easily double dip on them because it seems like crypto investors always fall for scams. There's no like, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. It's literally like, fool me 3,000 times and I'll keep on getting fooled because they, <laughs> they get scammed over and over and over again. That's sort of the allure though, that like, if you're going to invest in crypto, it's because you think you're going to get rich quick. So 
every get-rich-quick scheme that is obviously a scam you're going to fall for if you're one of those crypto hustlers. My favorite one, though, let me think. It's got to be, I don't know, I sort of enjoy the fact that, I'm sure he doesn't, but act, the actor Seth Green basically bought a Bored Ape Yacht Club NFT and Basically, one of the things the company Yuga Labs provides Board Ape Yacht Club holders is that you have the IP for that specific Board Ape image when you hold that NFT. So you could do whatever you'd like with it. You could print up merch or whatever. So Seth Green used his Board Ape to create a TV series around. He spent all this money on a live action slash animated mixed sort of pilot with actors and it heavily features the main character is his board api club nft and after he completed production and it was ready to go and be unveiled at some crypto conference someone scammed him and stole his board api club nft which means uh. <laughs> he no longer held the nft thus he no longer held the ip rights to it so he couldn't release that TV pilot that he created without first getting back the NFT. So he already spent six figures on the NFT originally. And then he ended up convincing the person who was holding the NFT, who would claim they bought it from the scammer. So they say they weren't the person who stole it from him. He then had to pay that person an additional six figures to get it back. Also, he can actually get this pilot seen. It's pretty incredible scam. I mean, if the guy who was holding it actually was the scammer, I mean, well done. But I mean, either way, Seth Green had to spend, I don't know, gotta been like half a mil for this Bored Ape NFT on top of the cost of actually producing the pilot featuring that Bored Ape. This has got to be the best ape show outside of like the Tarzan syndicated series now. So we're counting on you, Seth Green. The Seth Green really makes it as sort of the like mad libs of crypto. It's just like, I feel like it just draws in people. It's just like, I haven't thought about that person in like 15 years and now they're selling NFTs. And so <laughs> what will happen to the rest of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer cast? <laughs> <laughs> There's a It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia actor who's investing in this Web3 company where basically they're going to create characters and then people can invest in the nft token like the token of that character so that if something using that character gets big they can get a cut of whatever that is which sort of goes in the reverse of what like storytelling is all about you don't create the characters first and then try to insert them into a story you like write a good story first and then those characters become big it's a weird it's a weird thing like this web3 fixation from everybody who's been bought and sold from like tech vcs who are the one group of people by the way who are making a mint off of crypto and web3 they're buying this hook line and sinker in hopes of also making money and so in doing so they're basically trying to destroy the entertainment business whether it be music film they're destroying like the tech space they're destroying the financial industry the investment world they're going to just take everything down in search of these blockchain riches it's incredible so much to look forward to matt thank you so much for joining us it's been enlightening and distressing oh thank you for having me it was an absolute pleasure
And now for Fresh Hell, the segment where we tell you exactly what your crazy aunt is going to be posting on Facebook in the coming weeks. Sam, did you see this weekend there was a Trump rally in Ohio and there was this weird moment at the end where everybody was like holding up one finger in a weird salute? I did see some of the video from that. And having been to some rallies myself, I I've never seen that before. Yeah. So I'm glad you say that because I was kind of questioning my sanity, too. I'm like, what is going on here? And in fact, we had some listeners of the show paying us being like, can you explain what this one finger salute is? The short answer of it is nobody has any really great explanation. There are some good running theories. If you watch this video, it's really weird. We've got to set the scene here. Trump is speaking at the end of his rally. He's getting a little tired. He's getting a little sleepy. The voice is dragging as it does. But there's some dramatic music playing and everybody out in the audience is doing this weird one arm salute with one finger up in the air. Now, If you ask the real Trump obsessives, the people who are deep in the Trump lore on forums like the Donald, they're not sure either. In fact, those forums are all asking each other what that thing meant. And the leading theories are either that the one finger stood for the QAnon slogan, which is where we go one, we go all, because there was a song playing that sounded like a QAnon anthem that they all know, or that maybe it was a reference to America first. It's also possible that, as is the case in crowd events like this, maybe one person just started doing it and everybody picked it up, not even knowing what it was. But That said, now that it's a remarked phenomena, I'm kind of worried that this is going to be a thing that people are just going to do at Trump rallies. It's going to be the one finger up crowd, almost like the wave. And I'm already seeing a lot of people in QAnon circles on Twitter using the one finger up emoji, trying to get some momentum behind this. So Sam, if you're at any rallies and this is something that you see going on, I'd love to know what exactly people think they're doing. It's so funny. And I feel like we have the ingredients here almost for like, if you remember the like AOK hand signal. Yes. And how that (laughs) sort of like became the reason I mentioned it is because it sort of showed how like right wingers enjoyed adopting certain things kind of based on liberal outrage, like asserted liberals would go, that's a white supremacist symbol. And like, regardless of like, whether they intended or not, it it felt like conservatives were like, oh, this this is pissing off the libs. So we're going to do this. And I do wonder if based on the outrage over this, if like, it just becomes a thing divorced from however it actually started. But like, clearly, there is the overriding thing is like, oh, well, we're here to just make the libs mad. So let's do this, (laughs) this one finger salute. Yeah. (laughs) That's such a good analogy, because if people remember, like this AOK sign was really big in, I want to say like 2017, very alt-right centric. And it really, it's an interesting phenomena because it actually started as this 4chan meme where they said, we're going to make this sign. We're going to make the libs think it means white power. It doesn't actually mean anything, but they're going to drive themselves crazy deciding whether this is an OK sign or it's a racist thing. So it was all about this wink, wink. Haha, am I really a racist? Let the libs burn themselves out trying to parse it. And I think you're right that there's totally the potential for this one finger thing to turn into a similar phenomena where here we are trying to figure out what it means. Well, 
maybe it doesn't mean anything. It's sort of this empty signifier. And maybe another explanation is you see at a lot of these rallies, there's sort of a religious like devotional element. People will kind of put their hands up and they'll be swaying. And it sort of reminds me of that. So it's really hard to tell its origin. But the other discourse going around about this, because we got all these pictures of everybody with their arms up, of course, at like a 45 degree angle, one arm up facing Trump. And of course, it looks kind of like a Nazi salute, right? And I'm kind of resistant to this Twitter argument that says fascism is when you put your arm up at that angle rather than being a program of violent nationalism like the Trump administration has pushed. But it is interesting how that keeps happening at Trump rallies. He keeps getting photographed with the crowd, like with one arm up, kind of crooked in his direction. So for a movement that likes to talk about optics and the glory of a big rally, maybe they should keep their arms at their sides. Yeah, there is sort of a like, okay, guys, like we do know the context here for the whole kind of rally arm up salute thing. And like, maybe we've all, we're all supposed to understand that. do that, you're going to invite some unsavory comparisons. Maybe best to just leave that one out. I thought it might have been like a Hunger Games thing. Oh, true. (laughs) And Trump rallies and like the whole Trump vibe are, it's such a like weird pastiche of like cultural references and like movie references and like the songs often have like movie tie-ins and stuff and like there's just a lot of like like corny stuff that happens and the hunger games sort of aesthetic of the like where the resistance were fighting back sort of thing I i can see that being appealing but who knows totally i think if i were them i would like maybe get together and brainstorm like a whole bunch of approved hand gestures nothing that could be even vaguely interpreted as a nazi salute just a couple like maybe hands like like hip height and just maybe some rudimentary sign language, just things that are pretty unambiguous. I think we could all compromise on something like that. I mean, Trump himself is the master of hand gestures. So maybe just let him, I don't know if he started it, but (laughs) just let him take the wheel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're ready to follow his lead there. And I'm just, I'm very curious the evolution of this thing because I don't get the sense that it's going away now that it's been remarked on. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.